Seven Things I Wish Christians Knew. Hi, and welcome to Seven Things I Wish Christians Knew, a super series designed to help you get past seven of the most common mistakes Christians make when it comes to the Bible. I'm your host, Mark Hadley, and I'm joined by Dr. Mike Bird, theological superhero and the author of the book by the same name. G'day, Mike. Hello, Mark, and hello to everyone listening. Well, this episode, Mike's going to take us through chapter four. The Bible is for our time, not about our time, which is to say the Bible is for any time and for all time, but not on your time. First up, Mike, thanks for being part of the show. And maybe we should start with your perspective on this whole time question. This is really a question about how to interpret the Bible, isn't it? Yeah, it is, because on the one hand, we like to think that the Bible is timeless. You know, uh, wherever you are, at any time in history, at any place in the world, the Bible is applicable to you. But here's the other side. The Bible was also written in a specific time. Now, whether that's the book of Isaiah, like in the 8th century, or it's the Gospels in the 1st century about the life of Jesus, there's a kind of specificity or a particularity there, and it really helps to understand that so you can apply the Bible into your own circumstance. Well, I hope that's whet your appetite for the Bible is for our time, not about our time. And we'll be talking more up ahead. But first, we're going to benefit from hearing a bit of chapter four. The Bible is for our time, but not about our time. The Bible is for us. It is the principal source for how to believe and behave as disciples of Jesus Christ. The Bible exists for us to have a God-centered view of creation, to understand God's providence in history, to hear God's promises, to know God's words of warning and encouragement, to have the words of Jesus, to hear the apostles' testimony about Jesus, and to look ahead to the kingdom in all its future fullness. The private and public reading of the Bible is for us in the sense that it is for our training, our edification, our transformation, and our encouragement. The Bible is for us since the Bible enables God to speak to people across the tide of history, through our manifold cultures and languages, and in a way that truly transcends human differences. Whether you are a second-century Christian in Rome a 5th century Arab Christian in the city of Tikrit, or a 20th century believer in Zimbabwe, the Bible is God's word for you, for them, and for us today. The Bible is for us, yesterday, today, and until the end of the age. However, even though the Bible is for us, it was not written to us, nor was it written about us. When we read the Bible, we are entering into a historically and culturally distant world, and we must mind the gap, as they say on the London Tube. In the rush to make the Bible instantaneously relevant, we can inadvertently misuse it by not recognising the specific situation of the authors, and lazily pick up something that seems handy to us on a first read. In terms of Bible study, This is like browsing Wikipedia rather than spending a few hours in your local library. Reading scripture for quick practical application and ignoring the social, historical and cultural gap 
is like looking for instant gratification without the hard labour of study. The problem is that if we disrespect the historical distance, we will potentially distort its proper interpretation. Accordingly, it is essential to ask what Isaiah 53 meant for the Judean exiles in 6th century Babylon before we ask how it applies to 21st century Baltimore, Brisbane or Bogota. I know this is going to sound strange, but in order to make the Bible meaningful, relevant and applicable, the Bible must first be defamiliarised and dislocated from our own time. In other words, we have to grasp how strange the biblical world is before we can try to make it familiar to our own audiences. Or to say that again, we have to realise how different the Bible is from our own time before we can allow it to speak to our own contemporary situation. Otherwise, we will end up with a superficial reading of the Bible, or worse, we will end up reading our own context and times into the Bible. There is a real danger that we become overly familiar with the Bible in the sense that we read our own experiences into it. We have to remember that the biblical world is rather unlike our place and time. People who work in biblical translation deal with this problem all the time. I mean, just how much of the Bible can you translate into a culture, and how much do you have to leave untranslated? When Bible translators first came to Papua New Guinea, they had a problem. How do you say that Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world to people who have never seen a lamb and have no idea what a lamb looks like or how lambs were used for sacrifices and meat in the Middle East? Now in Papua New Guinea, they do have pigs, which were symbols of prosperity and wealth, and pigs were used in indigenous religious practices. So could you say that Jesus is the pig of God who takes away the sins of the world? Maybe but probably not a good idea given Old Testament prohibitions about consuming pork, which would create confusion. So, probably best to leave it as lamb. And then when someone says, what's a lamb? Go ahead and explain it to them. But I hope you get the point. Some things need to be left untranslated, kept different, and made foreign in order to properly understand them. The problem is that in the psychology of reading, we cannot help but associate the familiar with the unfamiliar in the hope of understanding better. We always associate the words, images and metaphors in a text with our own experience of those same words, images and metaphors. While the commonality of human experience is what makes translation and reading possible, there is the danger of projecting our own experience of something, whether lambs or temples, into the text you are reading. The problem is that things we take for granted, think of as self-evident or plainly assume, were often quite different to ancient peoples. When Isaiah or Luke mentions X, we might assume that X meant to them the same thing it means to us. But this is frequently not the case. Often words, concepts and symbols have different meanings in the ancient world than in our modern world.
Seven Things I Wish Christians Knew is brought to you by the Eternity Podcast Network, where you can find other excellent podcasts like The Word on the Street. If you've got young kids in your life, then this is a podcast you'll really want to know about. Each week, Children's Minister Anna Ware presents a 10-minute Take Anywhere Kids Bible Study that gets the whole family asking questions and thinking through Jesus' words together. You can find The Word on the Street with a bunch of other great podcasts over at eternitypodcasts.com or just follow the link in the show notes. And also in the show notes, you'll find a link that will help you get your own copy of Seven Things I Wish Christians Knew. Up next, each episode, Mike Bird will interview a well-thought-out Christian who has a lot to contribute on our current topic. For episode four, Mike speaks to Lynn Kidson. Dr. Lynn Kidson is a lecturer in New Testament at Alpha Crucius College, who specialises in the pastoral epistles. She's also an honorary postdoctoral associate at Macquarie University and a regular presenter at academic conferences, as well as being a committee member for the Society for the Study of early Christianity. So all up, a great person to help us understand why the Bible is for our time, but not about our time. Hi, it's Mike Bird. I'm doing the Seven Things podcast, uh, this time covering the topic of background. You know, do we need to know any backgrounds to understand the Bible? This is something I cover in the book, and I, I give a few examples. I talk about understanding biblical or ancient concepts of gift-giving and hospitality, how they're not quite the same in our world as they are in the ancient world. But one scholar I know who is very much into the importance of background, particularly for understanding the New Testament, particularly for understanding Paul, is Dr. Lynn Kidson from Alpha Crucis College in Sydney. Welcome along, Lynn. Uh, It's great to be talking to you about the importance of background historical background for understanding the Bible. Oh, thank you for having me, Mike. I'm really looking forward to this discussion. That's great. Well, you know, one of the things about um, background is you you do need to kind of have an extra knowledge because, you know, we all read the Bible in light of our experience, okay, and our context. And we can unconsciously project our own experience our own understanding, our own metrics, our own values into that. So, I mean, the example I often give, you know, in the pastoral letters where Paul says to, you know, women should dress modestly, um, I always assumed that was kind of talking about the amount of flesh that one is showing, you know, like no plunging necklines, you know, when it comes to skirts, you know, the fingertip rule, you know, make sure it's, you know, dresses below the fingertips, you know, I assumed it was something like that, but some people pointed out to me that the modesty that Paul's talking about is not of the amount of flesh that you're flaunting, it's rather the amount of bling that you're showing. You know, are you, are you dressing with ostens, ostentatious displays of wealth and really fancy hairdos and jewellery and, and makeup and, and costumes and clothes? So, you know, my assumption that it was about one thing was wrong because what Paul was really concerned about was something completely different. Now, Lynn, do you, do you have any good examples about how knowing a bit of biblical background information can give us a better or more accurate grasp of the Bible? So, actually, our own experience is not a bad place to start, and we can read the Bible sort of using our own experience, but there are 
there are limits. And um, a good example, I think, is, well, I did some research on the parable, the lost coin, and I've written up that as a journal article. And um, the lady of the house in ancient times, well, she was in charge of all the finances. She made all this the decisions about um, keeping the finances and how to spend them because that was women's work. And um, when the ladies in the parable of the lost coin is searching for her lost coin and sweeping it out, um, it's important to know that that's her role in life, that she, that the housewife keeps um, the security of the family economically um, is her role. So when she's desperately trying to find the coin, it's not just about um, the coin being lost. It's about the economic security of her family and her dowry, because it might have been a part of her dowry or um, that silver was given, and that might have been silver coin, which she would have hidden away in the house. And that's the reason why the coin might have been lost, was that her silver jewellery, this is part of her dowry, she might have taken out to wear to like a wedding. Um, but in taking out the silver jewellery, um, the coin might have gotten lost came out of the um, the container that she had it in. So lots of the, the these hoard, little hoards, household hoards, would be in like a pottery container with a narrow neck and buried in the ground, maybe under carpet, because they would pack carpet down over the, the packed down earthen floors of their dwellings. Um, or if they were really fancy, they might have had like kind of flat flagstones. The other way is that you might take out a um, a stone out inside of your wall and pop the container in behind the stone and cover it up. But usually it was in the ground. Yeah, she might have taken it out and lost the coin and then when she went to put the jewellery back in, discovered that one of the coins was lost. And the thing about the coins is that every coin, because they're hand-minted, is slightly different to the others, even though they have might have had the same um, images on them. You know, they never got minted exactly the same way. So, you know, when they're minting the coins, so it'd be a big hammer, you've got a die on one side and die underneath, and you put it down and you get a hammer and hammer it with this flan blank flan in between, sandwich in between, and you create the coin with image stamped on it. Like bits of the flan might pop out or the flan doesn't sit quite right in the um, the bottom die, so the image is a bit off, off skew, those sorts of things. So that means that every coin in the handful of coins that she has, she wouldn't have known quite uh, which what which coin was mi missing? You know, it's not just a coin was missing. You know, one particular coin is missing, which is how it relates to the parable of lost sheep because the shepherd knows exactly which sheep is missing and the parable of the lost son because, of course, the father knows which son has disappeared and ran off. Um, so these things help us understand the um, just the parable, just a simple little story. It's only uh, a few verses long, but it helps us to understand um, 
the anxiety. But we can start by our um, with our own experiences because I, I know I'm a country girl and um, I grew up on property and my dad was hopeless. My mum was the one that made sure that all the checks books were stubs of the checkbooks were kept in the little case so that, you know, tax time, when tax time came, all the receipts were kept um, so they knew what to do, you know, what they had to put together to get their um, tax done. That, that became her role. So I understood when I started reading about how um, in the ancient world, uh, a woman was responsible for the, the economic security of their household, that really it's not much different to the experience that my mum had as a um, farmer's wife because she was more than just the, you know, someone who kept house. She helped my dad run the business. Mm. Um, and really that's what women would get to do no matter um, what their station in life, they're like, their job was to assist their husbands in the management of their household, their business, whatever they were, you know, called to in life, um, they were meant to assist and they were financially savvy. They knew how to count and add up and if they had a checkbook, they would have been running the checkbook. Yeah, well, so sounds like what my wife Is that a good does, example? What my <laughs> wife does now, running the uh, the bank accounts, making sure, you know, bill, you know electric, electricity bill gets paid, water bill gets paid. I'm kind of the... Uh, the, the, um, the pr- primary supplier of the cash, but then how the cash gets spent seems to fall mainly under yep. her remit. And she's very Do good at that. Do you know that that's the ancient model? <laughs> that's, well, it's biblical. It sounds like it's, it's biblical. Okay, that's, that's well, pretty it's good. Well, it's biblical. Um, it's how things ran in the ancient world, no matter where you were. Indeed, indeed. Well, I mean, I, I can think of endless examples where knowing some historical background is a good idea. For, you know, for example, we do, we do have a very stereotypical view of the Pharisees as nothing more than um, paragons of hypocrisy and self-righteousness. And, you know, undoubtedly there is something to that in the critique that Jesus makes in the Gospels of, you know, what the Pharisees say and what they do. I mean, you can, you can find that almost in any religion. But it's it's wrong to say that the Pharisees were nothing more than that. There were other sides to the Pharisees, which is why many of the Pharisees became members of the early church. You know, and that's why there are a number of Pharisaic sympathizers with Jesus. And Jesus was arguably closer to the Pharisees than he was to any other Jewish sect. You know, I mean, for a start, he believed in resurrection. So that obviously puts him more towards the Pharisaic camp. But, you know, when I talk to students about this, you know, and when we're going through Paul and I bring up something from the Dead Sea Scrolls, you know, I compare something from Romans with something from the Dead Sea Scrolls, or I mention people like Philo or Josephus, or I bring up an image of of coinage or something like that, some students can get a little bit of anxiety. They can have the, like the... uh, the anxiety that, well, well, are you saying, Michael, that unless I'm an expert in in ancient archaeology of Egypt and Babylon and Mesopotamia, unless I can read Akkadian, unless I've, you know, memorized the Dead Sea Scrolls and I'm familiar familiar with the complete works of Josephus and Philo, are you saying I can't really understand the New Testament unless I know and have mastered all of this background material, because there's no way in my life 
I'm going to be able to do this because I just want to. I just want to be a pastor, or I just want to serve in you know ministry, um, you know, on a local university, or I just want to help out at my church. I mean, how can I be expected to know all of the background information for ancient Israel and for the New Testament? Is it, is this is this unreal? I mean, is it the danger that New Testament background comes like a scholarly elite magisterium of a of a few elite scholars who are competent to be able to interpret that material. If someone had that kind of anxiety, Lynn, what would you say to them? Um, well, I, I think the way that you're thinking about how um, all of this works is a bit unrealistic um, because what we're doing is all of us together reading the Bible is what matters. So I, I don't have insight into into all the new testament and certainly i mean i have no hebrew so you know i have to rely on others to um you know i'm just interesting interested novice in the old testament um so i'm in that position as well so every everyone is really we we only have expertise in our sort of more narrow fields and we rely on others to help us out. So it's all of us reading together and it's not one person that has the say over what something means or um, how we're meant to interpret it. And sometimes coming fresh to the um, text of someone with, a, you know, with lived experience, like I was trying to explain before about, you know, watching my mum and dad um, run a farm, um, can actually bring new things to the text without even having any scholarly um, training. But it's just that when a, when you come with the with the scholarly background, um, the the background to a text um, with that training, uh, it just helps enormously. And the idea is that it's my service and my ministry to you to assist you in reading the the text in a way that opens it up into fresh fields so that um, we can grasp the message um, and make it meaningful for us in our present time. So I was talking about the um, parable of lost coin because that's where people, even scholars got, in my opinion, kind of got lost and go around around circles because they're trying to, to interpret it in an allegorical way you know, the coin means this and the woman means this. and But really, it's pretty straightforward once you grasp, you know, how an ancient household function and what a woman's role is and how um, and uh, how people kept their savings safe and that she's looking for the one coin um, because she would know what that one coin looked like because that's part of the minting process. Um, once you start to like pull at the thread and you can't start to see how it kind of all hangs together, then Jesus's parable is quite straightforward and don't really need to do any allegorical interpretation. So it just makes it more meaningful, I think. You know, yeah, I th she's I looking that's... for the, the lost coin, just like God looks for us as the lost sinners. <laughs> yeah. Well, and I think that's right. I think you need to differentiate various levels of understanding. You can have a basic understanding 
of the parable of the lost of the woman the lost coin by reading the context there's something obviously very precious she's worried about it she finds it she rejoices and that can apply yes. to you know the, the lost sheep the lost son i mean you, you read it in literary context in luke 15 you can get the basic gist of what's going on but when you understand a little bit of background uh, i think you just get more depth more sharpness uh, more precision in what's going on um, it enriches like- our um, our yeah. understanding, yeah, and it's it's not kind of like some secret hidden knowledge that's only available to the elite. I mean, this is this is open to everyone, and by doing a little bit of historical background, we're simply giving ourselves better tools and better ways of understanding the whole depth of the biblical stories or of the teachings of Jesus. All the prophets, and you know, and I, I would add, then at the end of the day, we all need some reading aid for the Bible. Uh, you know, we all need a Philip to run beside our chariot. And you know, I mean, some people find reading something like the works of Matthew Henry. You know, some people find that helpful. And I say, you know, that's maybe helpful to a certain degree. But you know, you've also got read the Dead Sea Scrolls. It will be interesting. Read the Apostolic Fathers you know, or read something about ancient coinage. And you will, you will discover stuff that will make you go, ah, so this is kind of like that. Or, ah, now I understand why Paul uses that language. Or now I understand why people get upset when Jesus says this. Uh, you'll have those sort of little aha moments. And, and even if you can't read all the technical stuff, you know, most study Bibles, you know, whether it's ESV, NIV, NRSV, most study Bibles tend to fill you in on some of the crucial details about what is a Pharisee, you know, what is a coin, uh, where is uh, Galilee in relation to Israel. You know, m- most things will do that. And then there's those wonderful background commentaries. I mean, the I know you got the there's the IVP background commentaries for the New Testament and the Old Testament. There's so many simple sources you can avail yourselves to that I think do help you understand background, do help you get the most of the Bible without doing a PhD at Harvard University in ancient uh, or Macquarie University, uniform, <laughs> to bring it home. script or anything like that, You're, or even going to Macquarie and understanding the works of Cicero in comparison with you know, Igor the Cantankerous, a fourth century church father, or anything like that. So well, I would I mean, say that the key is just to be open, just to know that there might be other stuff that you need to take into account into a text that you might not know yet. Yeah, and and to and to know that their world is a little bit different. Okay. And by yeah. little I mean often a lot. I mean there are some <laughs> continuities of human experience, um, you know, across cultures, across the ages, there are some continuities of human experience. But, you know, the past is a different place. It's a foreign country. It is. Uh, and, and that's and what makes it exciting, it yeah, doesn't it's like it? Exploring. It's like travelling to another um, culture. And it, like here in Australia, I mean, Australians love to travel and it's, you know, the whole lockdown um, has been difficult because we can't go and travel. But we love yeah. to travel and experience new places. And that's really what reading your Bible should be like. If you don't have that sense of, gee, this is a bit strange, then you have to think maybe I'm not reading my Bible quite right. (laughs) All that type of curiosity, like I wonder what it was like back then. I mean, having those sorts of questions, I think, wow, what would it have been like to be on the road with Paul? What would have been like to be in Jerusalem and to hear the preaching of Jeremiah, you know, 
assuming you could you know speak Hebrew or something. Um, you know what you know what would have all that been like? And I, I think that that I think that desire to travel back and to know and to understand that's what really drives us in New Testament background. And yeah, it's it's one of those. And things. just even something simple like understand how far they actually walked. Yeah. I mean, oh. Yeah. Or it rides on carts and things, but it's a yeah. long way. Yeah. Um, there's a little, there's a free app, Roman Roads, I think it's called, and it will give you like the, the distance from one major city to the next major city. Um, and you can find it on the web. Yeah. Um, and you just go, wow, Paul walked from there to there. <laughs> yeah. my, my kids <laughs> right my across kids. Turkey. Through my the kids, you know, most hazardous mountains range that you could possibly imagine. <laughs> yeah, my my kids complain about walking around shopping centres. You know, they'd they'd rather just sit down and play on a screen and say, "No, no, we're going we're going to go out here and there, buy some, do some shopping, get an ice cream." Yeah. So, yeah, but one my, of the interesting things is um, how close Corinth is to uh, Athens. It's only yeah. a day's walk. Yeah. So when you're reading, that means when you're reading Corinthians. It's a good idea to think about the influence like a major centre like Athens would have on Corinth is a Roman colony. Like it had been wiped out by the Romans and then they rebuilt it. But Athens is like a prestigious ancient city with like it's a university city. It's a university town. Yeah, It has influence in Corinth, because it's only a day's walk. If you want to go and hear one of the top um, philosophers of the day, you just walked for the day and there there they were, you know, debating and discussing, just like Paul found them in Areopagus. Um, you didn't have to go too far to know, you know, what the latest trends were in um, philosophical debates, you know, just at hand. So when you're reading Corinthians, it helps to know that, I think. And Paul is engaging in that, you know, when he talks about wisdom and sophistry and stuff like that. Well, of course he's talking about that because there's this influence of this big university city um, on the thought life of um, the folks he's addressing in Corinth. So it, it makes a heap explains things <laughs> it does it does well lynn it's been gr- very great chatting to you about the importance of historical background for understanding the bible i guess for both of us uh, mainly in the context of the new testament uh, i hope this encourages other people to uh, take up and read some sources to help them understand the uh, the bible in the biblical world uh, much better and much greater detail and depth so hopefully we've encouraged you in that Thanks for joining us, Lynn. Uh, Maybe we'll do this again sometime. I'd love to do that. Okay. Thank you very much, Lynn. Bye. Thanks for joining us for 7 Things I Wish Christians Knew. We hope it's been a helpful challenge for some of the unconscious assumptions we make about history's best-selling book. Hey, Mike, in a sentence or two, what do you think the takeaway is for this episode? Yeah, in our rush to apply the Bible, we're going to do that better if we take the time to learn something about the Bible's context, the historical situation, the cultural surrounding, look at the religion, the philosophy, the sociology, what daily life was like in the ancient world. The more we understand that, the better grasp we have of the back then period 
the better we're going to be in our application and communication in the here and now. Awesome. Well, if you're convinced, you can get your own copy of Seven Things I Wish Christians Knew by following the link in the show notes. Next episode, we invite Old Testament lecturer, the Reverend Andrew Judd, onto the show to discuss the next chapter. We should take the Bible seriously, but not always literally. Mike, thanks very much for being on the show. Thanks for having me, Mark, and thank you to all our listeners for joining us. And hope you can join us again next episode. You've been listening to the Eternity Podcast Network, eternitypodcasts.com.au.